So the Bible reading is from 40th chapter of the prophet Isaiah and begins at the 12th verse. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person to pour to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you know? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, it's great to be with you as we cap off our Advent series in Isaiah 40, uh, going from verses 12 all the way through to 31. Uh, I wonder if anyone experienced a bit of deja vu as this passage was being read, because that might be because this passage is actually echoed by the gospel writers in different ways in their descriptions of the work of Jesus. Uh, this is a passage that casts a shadow over the New Testament is a key way in which we interpret what is happening with Jesus. Uh, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to think about this passage. We're going to think about what it teaches us about gods uh, and, in, and the hope that we, as we read the Gospels will then be that we will better understand them and interpret them because we understand this other text that they're drawing from. Sound good? 
All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We stand in awe at the immensity of you. And we pray, Father, that you help us to understand uh, this uh, yeah, perspective that you have that we may never get to understand until the final day. Uh, Father, help us to find hope in the fact that while you are immense, you still care for us and reach into our world anyway. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, I think we're pretty good at underestimating things, uh, and the best way that I can kind of prove to you straight away that we underestimate things is if you are a novice cook and you've ever tried to make a recipe using a cookbook. Uh, I discovered very quickly that Jamie Oliver is a liar, and that it does not take 15 minutes to make the meals in his book. He also, chew he also talks with his mouth full, which I hate, but that's another thing. Uh, if you're watching online, Jamie Oliver... Uh, oh, have you ever started a DIY task and then discovered that it's a lot worse or bigger than you kind of anticipated? Turns out painting sucks, right? You think, oh, painting these walls of my house is going to be all right. It's not all right. It's terrible. Or really just any job that your dad has ever asked you to help him with, ever. Uh, things will often end up being a lot worse than we estimate them to be. We often think that things are smaller than they are really, and that our perspective on things is that they're never quite as big as they are. And, and that kind of, can, we can also see that when we try and comprehend the size of different things in the universe. Well, one of the things that we do struggle to understand as well is the immensity of our God. Look at verse 12 with me. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Uh, an observation that is often made about the difference between modern day Christianity and historical Christianity is that today Christians don't tend to feel the weight of God in their lives. They don't tend to feel his hand at work. His size and magnitude doesn't penetrate the different parts of our lives. Our faith doesn't have a major influence in what we do after we go home on a Sunday. Yeah, it kind of will for most of us, I think, when we make major life decisions. Uh, he can kind of come to the front again. But in day-to-day -day thinking about other things, it kind of ends up being a bit of a category that we put aside while we deal with the other categories that we have in our lives. We don't see or maybe notice his power in the world around us, especially when we're facing other struggles, especially when we see so much pain and suffering and when world politics can seem so chaotic. Isaiah today wants to remind us of his weight, of his size. It can be hard to see God's work when we see it as a category among others because he is not able to be put into any single box. He is the box in which all things are contained. It can be hard to look for specific instances of God's work in your life, not because he isn't there or they aren't there, but because his work is in everything. Those suffering in Babylon, who Isaiah is writing to, are looking for God's work in the world, but they need to be reminded that God's work 
is the world. He is the creator. He is grander and more immense than can be imagined and therefore cannot be contained in the way that we would often like to. Where is God's work in my life? Well, God's work is your life. Check out verse 15 as we think about his transcendence. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Those who have been taken into exile in Babylon are facing a crisis of faith. They have lost everything. And now they enter the country of their enemy as prisoners confronted by the statues of their enemies' gods, the gods of what seems like the victors. And these gods give them permission to abandon their own god, to do things they weren't able to do before, abandon the law. They're saying, become like us. Look how good it is. How must that have felt? How easy would it have been to assume that these statues of gods are more powerful than their god? How easy to abandon hope, or even to abandon their God altogether. Now for us now, it doesn't really look like kind of statues of different pagan gods around the city as we walk around, but for us instead, we know that we now live in a material society. That everything that we see around us, while we may not call it a God, is set up to be worshipped in one way or another. We turn everything into an idol through the choices we make, through the things that we prioritize. You can see this in people by what they're passionate about, right? And as the secular world becomes more and more dominant, it's been easy for us to feel a similar way to the exiles. We aren't the ones in the majority anymore. We had a time in history when we were, but now we are much more like the early church. A time when Peter, in his first letter, would compare the experience of Christians to exiles. For us now, it can certainly feel like the idols of the world are on the winning side. People who worship these things seem to have it better than us, seem to be more successful, more happy maybe. Our faith can feel like it's a handicap for success. And in one sense, there are some pretty easy targets for the preacher around this point in the year, right, around Christmas time. The idea of what makes Christmas great, right, whether it's the presents we get, or for me, it's things like the food. I I couldn't really be more excited to have prawns for the first time in three years since coming back from the UK. Uh, Or time with family, right? It's the one day of the year. Uh, I think, I was was joking with some guys about this before, it is the most easily justified missed church service in the year, right? Christmas Day. It is the church service that none of us feel any guilt about missing. 
And it reveals that for each of us, we actually do have a threshold for importance of church. I'm just too pushed, too close to time. I need to get the food cooking. I need to make sure I'm ready. I've just got too much on. It's a big day. It becomes a, I'll go if I have time. I went the day before, right? It's easy to set aside God when everything around you is giving you permission to, including each other. Now, of course, there are good reasons I'm not having a go. The challenge, I think, is just that we think a little bit harder about the reasons for why we do these things. Because often all we need is permission to do whatever we want. Uh, I hit this really weird point uh, in life. I turned 18 quite early in year 12 in school, and so did a bunch of my friends, uh, and we thought that that essentially made us self-governing. Uh, I went to a public school, so they didn't kind of come down too hard too early. Um, but we got called into the principal's office, about five or six of us, uh, and the principal kind of read out the, the absentee book. What was the book, which is like the reasons for being late to school. And basically, we thought, well, we're 18 now. I don't need a note from my parents to tell me that I'm late. Actually, turns out you do. But uh, we didn't think we did. Uh, and the principal kind of read out the kind of arrogant reasons for being late that we'd written in there. Um, they included uh, accidental time travel, uh, velociraptor explosion, and kidnapped by leprechauns. Um, although he was impressed that I spelt leprechaun correctly. So, you know, three units of English right there. But I thought that I was kind of, I, all I needed was permission, right? I thought, I'm 18, I've got this little bit of extra, I'm just going to go do what I want. Uh, I'm a self-governing, controlled, kind of sufficient human being, right? Like, I was still going home, sleeping in my parents' house, relying heavily on food that they provided and their private health insurance. But no, I'm, I'm 18, I could do what I want. Uh, Another thing that we used to do was we, we then thought, you know, we can kind of do whatever we want. Uh, and so on Thursday nights, we used to go to, I'm really into screamo music. Uh, and there's a, there used to be a club in the city called Hot Dam that played screamo music. Um, it was on a Thursday night, and we go straight to school afterwards. Uh, so we'd be sat in physics uh, in the morning. Uh, and Mr. Gurgis, a very wise Coptic Orthodox Christian, sat down with me. And he said, Tom, just because you don't need permission doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility. And that just hit me like a freight train about a month out from my HSC trial exams. Because that is the situation that Isaiah is addressing. Surrounded by permission to do what they want. In Babylon, they are surrounded by idols of gods built by human hands. Often they look magnificent and powerful around them. People are building idols for comfort and assurance to give themselves permission to do what they want, to walk away from this God that feels too hard to follow. But they have a responsibility to him. But people want things that they can see, things that they can understand. But God can't be put into our minds like that. He can't simply be understood in human terms. He transcends all things that are not himself. Friends, one of the biggest problems we face in our attempts to comprehend God in his fullness is that we end up making him too small. Before him, the nations are a drop in the bucket. For the exiles, they want to think in terms of their oppressors versus their God, right? They want to kind of make it my oppressors versus my God. But he's not there, right? He's here. 
It degrades God to put him up against other things because things cannot be compared to him. He is the power. He is the king of kings. Sometimes I think we think of God the same way as we do politicians, right? Lots of promises under delivery. And we're tired of that. We're tired of what it feels like a never-ending struggle in life where kind of, you know, each, each politician in a new election will now probably say, well, I'm going to bring down the cost of living, but months on later, it's still going up. When things don't seem to get better, the natural question is raised. Where is God then? If he is so immense, if he is so transcendent, where is he? And this is exactly the response of the exiles. If this is who our God is, and you say he's coming, remember verses 9 to 11, then why is everything terrible? Why, if God is so powerful, can I not see him? Well, God answers this in verse 27, the care of our God. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. God has heard these complaints. He listens. But his answer isn't the comfort that you might have expected or hoped for. Instead, he pushes back. And this is related to the way he transcends our reality. Uh, I used to have a boss uh, who was a really, really great guy. And one of the things I liked about him a lot was that he was a really good listener. But he used to do this thing that drove me insane which is that when I kind of had a problem, I'd sit and I'd chat to him about something and I would just feel heard by this guy the whole time. Uh, maybe I had an issue with the way that we were going to do something or something that he wanted to say or what we we're going to do uh, and I just feel so heard by him. And then later on, he'd kind of do the thing that I didn't want him to do anyway. And I'd be like, what were you doing, man? I felt so heard by you in that moment. And he was really, and that was really helpful for me because he listened to me but didn't just do what I wanted, right? I was like, dude, why, why are you still doing this? And he's like, oh, dude, I wanted to hear what you had to say. I just think you were wrong. And actually, that's fine. Verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Who can claim to understand, know, or even, even fathom what God is doing in any situation? Our context, our understanding is so limited that when we see bad things happening, we are not able to see or understand the bigger picture of what God is doing. And so there's a certain amount of trust involved in this. When Isaiah has been reminded us, reminding us of who God is, he's been trying to humble us before him, to accept that we don't necessarily know what is good and right and should happen, not because we're under his thumb, but because when we understand the immensity of God, we loosen our grip on wanting to make sure that what I think is right is what happens all the time. For some of us, this may feel a bit like a rebuke, but that's not the point here in the text. The point is that we do not need to worry that our God is failing. He isn't. We might not understand, we might not often like what is happening, 
but we can trust that this God is bigger than we can understand. And therefore, we do not need to carry the burden of doubt. We do not need to let our understanding of the world undermine the reality of the one who stands above and outside of these things. Sometimes it's just like we, we live inside a snow globe, right? And if the snow globe gets shaken, we think that the whole world is being completely destroyed when actually outside of it, someone's just shaking it and everything outside of there is fine. Context, the perspective that you have when compared to him who guides, creates, and sustains the universe is always going to be a challenge. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This brings us to the beauty of the gospel, that the God who is immense, that the God who is transcendent would then care about us, the grasshoppers before him. The hope is, is, that is given to the exiles is not that things will come immediately and be better, or that things will happen the way that they think they should. Other parts of Isaiah predict an end to the exile, but here we see the greater and more important hope, that while things may be hard now, this God can be trusted with the future, because in spite of his immensity, he still cares for you. He reaches into the world, strengthens his people to endure, and will continue to renew their strength. Now, the word for hope here, uh, it actually has the same mean meaning semantically as to wait, which is fitting, but also may feel like bad news. Those who wait, who look to the coming of the Lord, who hold to the truth of who he is and patiently endure, will have their strength renewed he will get them there to a time when they will soar on wings like eagles, when they will never grow tired again, but for now they are called to wait, to hope in this God, and to trust that he is working towards their redemption, that this God of the universe who is coming authentically cares for them and will bring about their freedom from exile. Yes, we are tired, but we can trust God. Yes, we are tired, but we are not alone. Now, of course, in one sense, he does this when they're freed from exile after 70 years. But even then, they see that these promises are not completed, that they are still hoping, that they still need to keep hoping and waiting for the fulfillment that is to come. And that, my friends, is where Christmas comes in. This is the point that all Isaiah 40 is building towards. Behold, your God has come. The moment when the immense God of the universe humbles himself to take on the very flesh of his own creation, becoming one of the grasshoppers. This is a crescendo of hope. The expectation building through the prophecy of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, in his work and in the salvation that he brings to all mankind. And this is why Christmas is such a magnificent moment. 
worthy of starting with worship to this God, because it is the proof that this God was and is worth waiting on, that our hope is well-placed and that he is all that he says he is. He is everything that Isaiah 40 claims him to be. And as always, unlike the exiles, we are so lucky because we look backwards at the events with the benefit of seeing how God would prove this and would prove his promises are sure through Jesus. And so we are too called to hope in the Lord, to wait for the Lord. We are tired and we are weary, but we will be strengthened as we endure, as we look towards the final hope in the return of Jesus. This Christmas, remember this hope, this proven hope, and gain your strength to go on from it. In this world, it will often seem like the idols are winning. Sometimes we will not be able to pinpoint where God is at work, and sometimes we will be tempted to turn away. But our God is more immense than the things that tempt us. He transcends the realities of all that we fear, and he has proven that he cares more about you than you can ever understand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Isaiah 40 and for what we've taken away from it over the past four weeks. We pray, Lord, that you fill us with hope and joy this week as we consider the truth of Jesus and his birth. Father, help us to feel the excitement and the tension in the lead up to hearing and remembering the Jesus story, the nativity story. Um, we pray so much, Lord, that it would be a time that draws us closer to you and reassures us of our hope. In Jesus' name. Amen.